MySpace was 120 million users, monthly active users, uh, at a time when not that many people were online. You know, this is 2006 to 2009, basically, is kind of the heyday. Yeah. So for its day, I mean, depending on what month it was, it would be a top three or a top four site on the entire internet. The only ones that were bigger were like the Googles and the Yahoos and so forth too. It was a cultural phenomenon. It was on the news every night. It was everyone's top. We were the first to kind of build the social graph which everything is built on now. You know, Facebook, LinkedIn, everything has a social graph. And we really started around that too. So, I mean, it was everywhere. It was unavoidable. And even when it was, before it was even declining, people were getting a little bit sick of it because they just saw it everywhere. And everything was about MySpace. So even if you think about, yeah, Facebook's in a lot of discussions today, it wasn't even close. Yeah, I was doing a lot around trying to better understand the data and the users. This is a big reason that Facebook really won. They were big data smart and we were data dumb. We just didn't know really what was going on there. I'm Stephen Cummins and this is episode 76 of 14 Minutes of SaaS and the first of a five-part mini-series chatting with Sean Percival, CMO at Whereby, formerly of 500 Startups and MySpace. MySpace was 120 million active users at a time when the internet was nowhere near as big as it is today. It was a top five internet site at its peak and it invented the social graph. Sean worked across a host of roles in IT and software, but it wasn't until he found marketing and content that he found something he was really great at. When I interviewed Sean a few months ago, the name of whereby was appear in, appear.in. We don't actually reference the name too much anyway, but whereby has more than 10 million users and hosts more than 50 million meetings annually. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. Today we're in 37 Dawson Street, probably the coolest pub in Dublin, so if you hear a little bit of music in the background, that explains it. We're upstairs in the back room there, and it's the day after the Dublin Tech Summit. And I have Sean Percival, CMO at Appearin, with us. And I'm delighted to, to have you here, Sean. Thanks for having me. So, uh, start off by telling us a little bit about your background, who you are and, and uh, what's happened in your life uh, up to the point where you entered into the working world. Mm. Okay, so even going way back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I try not to do the whole life story. My dad will tell you I was always a nerd. I was the one that was programming the VCR when I was five. Remember, we used to have to program VCRs and actually yeah. you know, do that kind of thing. Uh, and it was always very curious, always into computers and technical. And when I was about 11 or 12, my dad bought me my first computer and that really started this journey. So I was really into bulletin board systems, kind of all the pre-internet stuff as well. Uh, and that's where I got kind of curious. And then I went the typical teenager route of like getting in trouble and doing bad stuff and all these other things. And during that time, of course, the dot-com boom just takes off and goes crazy. Yeah. And I was a little distracted. And then I came back to it. And thankfully, computers didn't go away all the, you know, altogether. And that's how I kind of got started is I realized, oh, that's right, I'm technical and I know computers in a world where very few people do. Started my first job in the technical space doing tech support. So basically, you have an issue with your computer, you call me and I was on the phone, I was the one helping you out. And it's amazing how many uh, entrepreneurs that I've interviewed actually started in tech support. One of the keys is how quickly you can work your way out of that, but of course it's an interesting process in itself. 
it does give you that interface with the customer, that appreciation of, of their needs, I suppose, from the start. So there's, there's something to be learned from every, every role, right? It was really good for me. It gave me a lot of patience. Uh, as soon as you take a 65-year-old grandma through editing her Windows registry, which is a rather complex thing to do, you will have infinite patience. And so you're right, it was a really good experience into how does the quote-unquote normal person start using a computer in the year 1999 when nobody knew how these things worked. And can you, over the phone, walk them through the whole process? It was a great challenge. And, you know, you went through uh, a few companies uh, with uh, different technical roles that went beyond support uh, before uh, you went into kind of the content strategy side of things with Mahalo. Can you talk to me a little bit about those companies that preceded uh, that change in your career and, you know, how formative that was for you? Yeah, for me, I, I was kind of just finding my way and I thought I was going to be a programmer. Turns out I wasn't a really great programmer. I thought I was going to be a designer. Turns out I wasn't an awesome designer. Uh, I did a lot of the IT jobs, you know, literally running wires and being the IT manager uh, and sort of setting up Outlook and all the other things you had to do. So I had to really kind of try everything and that gave me a nice diverse skill set. And it wasn't until I really found marketing and content that I realized this is what I should do. This is where I'm great at something, not just good. And so I leaned into that. Now, um, you, you actually have a, a tremendous uh, reference on your LinkedIn profile from uh, the guy who, at least when he gave it in 2016, was the CEO of Mahalo. And I think he might have been junior to you when you were there, actually. But he says you were kind of a rising star at the time before you got there. Uh, what was it that, uh, that Mahalo saw in you, uh, given your previous roles, that made them think, yeah, let's bring this guy in to do content? What did you done or, or how did that happen? Yeah, I guess you're talking about Jason Calacanis. I am indeed, yes. yes. Okay. So I was still in my like IT webmaster kind of jobs. I had never really worked for a startup. And somehow I caught wind of what he was doing. And I was making okay money, not amazing, but okay. Uh, but I wrote to him and I said, I love what you're doing. Here's three ways you could do it better. And ah. I think that challenged him. And not only, this was kind of using a little bit of the programming and the design, I actually did mock-ups of how his startup could sort of better present the information and how his content could be more SEO friendly. Wow. And so I sent him like, you, which is kind of a bold thing to do because he was still, he had good stature, he was well known, but I was like, this is what you should do. And I literally Photoshopped his sort of a revision of the site and he called me in and actually sat there and said, you know, we're, if you want to work here, we're going to pay you half of what you make right now. You're going to have to work hard and earn it. Uh, but to me, I was just like, absolutely. I want to be there. I want to learn. I mean, he was a bit of an authority. He had created the modern blog ecosystem, you know, with weblogs and Engadget and all these sites. So I kind of want to just be in his orbit. And, and that's how it started. And a lot of people ask me that. I want to work for company XYZ. And it's like, well, step one is to outreach. And step two is to show them how you can help. And it's... I've seen it work many times. It's personally worked for me as well. And I guess it's the mark of a good entrepreneur, isn't it? The ability to be challenged and to embrace being challenged. Yep. Challenge yourself and others. I mean, I think that's part of it. And, and I was able to do that. Working at Mahalo, you know, yeah, it crashed and burned, and, but still, like, it was an amazing experience. I learned so much from Jason Calacanis. So I have been lucky to work for people like Jason and many, many great bosses who have really propelled. It allowed me in one year's time to get a five or 10 year skill set built by having the best bosses. So I, I had to seek them out though. I had to find them and, and show them why I was worthy of some time and worthy of a chance. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, um, tell us a little bit more about 
what you did in, in, in Mahalo, what, what, you, what you were doing for them and, and how that felt that first six months, 12 months where you were doing something you loved but probably different to what you'd done before. Yeah, much larger scale, you know, we were in the press, you know, people knew who we were. Anything I'd done before was so small scale. And so really, I don't know, I, early in my career, a lot of people ask me too, what books did you read? What school did you go to? And I say, I read zero books and I dropped out of college twice. I learned from trial and error and experimentation. And I did a lot of experimentation around SEO, so search engine optimization. That was a pretty big deal back in the day. Sure. A lot of businesses were built on it, less sure. so nowadays. Uh, but that's what I was doing. I was really trying to like, we had a lot of people power, we had a lot of smart stuff, we had good technology, and I was just really trying to further the message. How do we get better search traffic? How do we improve the results? How do we sort of get more traffic? And Jason was addicted to traffic, I was addicted to traffic, so it was a very good collaboration of like the power and the resources he had and just trying to propel that further and, and get more audience. That's really what I was focused on. You pushed on from uh, Mahalo and really went into content strategy and management over the next kind of two or three companies. Were there any formative experiences in those two or three companies that bridged your way to MySpace? Yeah, I learned a lot about uh, the Google algorithm, how it embraces newness, how topical content just has this massive rocket of traffic. And that may die the next day, but I really leaned a lot into that in the next few jobs I worked at. DocStock as well, which is essentially like online documents. And they went on to do well and they ended up selling, didn't raise a lot of venture capital, but ended up building a site that, you know, we took it from maybe half a million visitors a month to millions of visitors in a very short period of time. So I started to understand more of like trends. Uh, Buzzfeed was emerging at the time. It was a tiny blog back then. Yeah. And just starting to see this like interesting sort of what you could do with topical content and the insatiable need that people have when something happens, when an event happens. And they immediately go online and they search and they look on social and they try and find this. So I, I learned a lot about that, that initial rush. And, and we did that in Mahalo, we did that in Docstock, and that even eventually went into MySpace as well. And even though it was getting a little bit harder at that point in MySpace, we knew that like people had a desire on something, events in music and entertainment could generate a lot of value both for us and the user. Now, MySpace has infamously accidentally deleted every member's content that's been produced anytime before the last three years. It's a, it's a bit of a tragedy, an really ongoing is. tragedy. Remind us of how big the forgotten MySpace once was in our world. And, you know, how was the experience for you? You know, MySpace was 120 million users, monthly active users. Uh, at a time when not that many people were online. You know, this is 2006 to 2009, basically, is kind of the heyday. Yeah. So it didn't have the economies of scale you have today with billions and billions of people online, emerging markets online. We didn't have any of that, too. So for its day, I mean, depending on what month it was, it would be a top three or a top four site on the entire internet. That's incredible. The only ones that were bigger were like the Googles and the Yahoos and so forth, too. So, I mean, but I think what's more interesting is like if you weren't around then, it was a cultural phenomenon. It was on the news every night. It was everyone's top. We were the first to kind of build the social graph, which everything is built on now. You know, Facebook, LinkedIn, everything has a social graph. And we really started around that too. So, I mean, it was everywhere. It was unavoidable. And even when it was, before it was even declining, people were getting a little bit sick of it because they just saw it everywhere. And everything was about MySpace. So even if you think about, yeah, Facebook's in a lot of discussions today, it wasn't even close. Every news story just wanted to talk about it. Your friends became a new metric. <laughs> Online friends, you know, this was never a metric before for judging sure. someone's authority or someone's signal or, or whatever you want to call it too. So it was a big, big deal. Uh, and really what happened was that like 
it slowly eroded, but it took a long time. It didn't really, Facebook didn't surpass us until I believe it was May of 2009. You know, so this is even years after the heyday, years after the acquisition as well too. So it managed to stay. Uh, we had 100 to 200,000 signups per day. If you think about that, I mean, it's That's like incredible. a small city was <laughs> signing up every single day. That's insane. So it's a big reason I joined. I was more of a startup guy. I was more working with the Mahalos and Docstock, these kind of tiny 10 to 20 person companies. MySpace was 1,000, 1,400 employees, I think, at the peak. Uh, but to me, it was an amazing challenge because I had done all these like grassroots efforts of like, how do we go from zero to one? And here I'm like, okay, how do I go from like nine to 12 or 11? I don't know the Spinal Tap reference. You know, how do I go bigger? So it was, it was really fascinating, but it was so much harder. It's now, a big ship. Now, when you, you know. joined, it was obviously something cool to you at that point. And I know that you were, you were later in, in, in that tenure to want to try and convince them to change their name as things started to get a bit more uncool, or maybe as your realization of what was going on once you were inside, uh, kind of matured, but you know, in those in that early first year when you would have been very excited by the brand, um, what, what were you doing? Yeah, I was doing a lot around trying to better understand the data and the users. This is a big reason that Facebook really won. They were big data smart, and we were data dumb. We just didn't know really what was going on there. And the data team was 20 people. Uh, our infrastructure, the architecture, it didn't allow us to extract the information of what, why are things happening. Where are the users spending time? Where are they getting stuck? And to do these optimizations. So it was a lot of like head pounding. In the next episode, the second of this five-part mini-series, Sean describes what it's like to have to fire an icon after joining one of the most famous tech companies in the world. And he explains why Facebook won and MySpace didn't. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills and to Katsu for the music. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and give the show a rating.